Wasn't that beautiful? Your glory. Anything. Well, beloved, we're going to give our attention to God's word in just a second. But before we do, a, a few things to um, celebrate this morning. Uh, this morning is our brother Matt Swanson's birthday. Amen. Happy birthday to Matt. And tomorrow is Afia Anyabwile's birthday. Yeah. <laughs> And Tuesday is Omoye Blue's birthday. It's also Jalen Mitchell's birthday on Tuesday. May 5th is Coley Jimmy Baywan's birthday. Cinco de Mayo, whole world throw a party for Coley's birthday. And April 7th is April Dingle's birthday. So we get to celebrate birthdays all week long this week. Praise be to God, praise be to God. In just a couple of weeks, on May 14th, I think it is, Grace and Isaiah ought to be wed. And so we give God praise for that. Continue to pray for them and to encourage them. And now this morning, I had the privilege of, of seeing uh, a sister we love but hadn't seen in a while that she's moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Our sister Jadine Johnson is in the house this morning. Good to see you, sis. We praise God for you. It's sweet when the Lord uh, surprises us with visits like, like this. Last week, Christina's daughter uh, was back in town. We got to see Christina last week and Jadine this week, and we give God praise for you. And um, you guys remember a long time ago, back in the Jurassic era, before the pandemic, um, we used to sometimes welcome visitors, but we'd have the member introduce the visitor. Anybody remember that? All right. If you're a member and you've got a visitor with you this morning, just raise your hands where, wherever you are. Okay. Amen. Praise be to God. And so, Miss Reese, I want to ask you to introduce your visitor with us this morning. Amen. Praise God. Welcome, Amelie. Yeah. So glad to have you. So glad to have you. Did I see some other hands? Some other hands? Okay. Hey, Kim. Welcome. Excellent. Welcome, Sarah. Sister Hannah, you said she's visiting from where? Kansas. Excellent. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah. I, see, I got this one, Kristen. All right. Anybody else? Cool. Well, let me introduce you to um, dear, 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 dear brothers and sisters in the Lord and saints as well. I uh, had the privilege this weekend of being visited by Derek and Tina Scott. Uh, from Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, Derek, yeah, you can, you can, there you go. Big up Raleigh and all that good stuff. I was thinking about this a couple of days ago as we were anticipating their coming. Uh, Derek and I have been friends at least since kindergarten. At least since kindergarten. This is the young man. You've heard me ever use this analogy about um, playing kung fu theater on Saturdays across the street in the churchyard. This is the guy I was doing crane style and tiger fist with and, all that good stuff. I think Derek is probably the first human being I've used the word friend for. And I give God praise for him. I think Derek, amen. When I was a Muslim, I think Derek, the Lord used Derek to pray me into the kingdom. And, uh, and so we give God praise uh, for my brother. And his wife is far beyond his equal. Uh, just zealous in prayer, joyful 
if you don't want to be encouraged, stay away from it. All right. Uh, but just a delightful, sweet uh, brother and sister, Lord, we're so glad to have y'all with us this weekend. Amen. Amen. Let me offer a word of prayer. We'll get to God's word. Father, we do want to be where you are. Lord Jesus, we want to be where you are. Holy Spirit, we want to be where you are. We know that you are with us even now. You'll never leave us nor forsake us, but we are speaking of that day when you return, when we will see you with our eyes and behold your glory. Lord, we do pray that you would give us the ability by your grace to cross the hottest desert, travel near far, just to be with you where you are, to behold your glory. We pray that you would let us behold some glimpse of your glory even now as we turn to your word. Feed us by your word. Strengthen us in faith. Help us, O Lord, to continue in faith. Protect us from the evil one. Bring yourself honor through our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Essie, thank you for leading us in worship this morning and leading us with the, with the motions and the, and the songs. I, I don't know about you, but I tend to love that. I tend to wake up a little bit. Body gets active and get engaged in a different way. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that leadership. And as we were singing, I'm reminded that almost everything we need to know for life we learned in kindergarten. We adults would be better off if we remembered what we were taught as children, even in Psalms. So I was thinking this morning of, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Goes on to ear and tongue. And if we would be careful with how we live, Remembering that there is a Father in heaven who loves us, how much better would our life be? How much more encouraged would we be to seek godliness if we remember that the Father is looking down, not in wrath, not in anger, not ready to strike us, but looking down in love because he cares for us. How that would motivate us to carefulness. And so I'm reminded this morning of those truths that many of us probably learned when we were little bitty tykes, four, five, six years old. And and I'm reminded that actually we don't outgrow those truths. They may get more complex. We may have to work them out in more difficult situations, but but nothing really is beyond, well, be careful how you live. For you have a father up above who's looking down in love when you wish to honor and please, so be careful how you live. And that really is the spirit of this next section of the church covenant. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're in a series where we are walking through our church covenant. Our church covenant is really a summary of some key teachings in the Bible about how Christians are to live. And so it is between us a a contract, if you will, a relationship, if you will, a, a bond, an agreement that we make to live together as a covenant community in ways that the Bible calls us to. To live together as a covenant community in ways that honor God and honor each other and honor and serve our neighbors. 
Uh, you'll find that covenant somewhere in your bulletins around page 10 or 11 or so. And we're about seven paragraphs down, eight paragraphs down uh, on this section of the covenant. And as I read it, you let me know whether or not it, it matches that song. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. From the covenant, we will seek by God's help to live carefully in this world, denying ungodliness and worldly passions. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present evil age as we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing, or excuse me, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're a member of the church, you have made this commitment to seek by God's help to live carefully in this world, denying ungodliness and worldly passions, to strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present evil age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I said our covenant was really kind of summarizing passages of Scripture, uh, and this part of our covenant really is joining together um, two passages of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, and Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. So I want to read those for us. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. And Titus 2, 11 to 14. If you want to put a little bookmark in those places, we'll be coming back and forth between those sections of Scripture along with some others. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says this. Look carefully then how you walk or live not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And then Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawless, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this part of our covenant really is taking the first part, Ephesians 5.15, look carefully how you walk, and joining that together with Titus chapter 2 and the promises that are made there in Titus chapter 2, and is binding us together to live this way. Now, I want to walk us through the statement and walk us through these passages of Scripture um, with three points. So if you're taking outlines or taking notes, this is the outline for the sermon this morning. Point number one, we live in a hostile world and an evil time. We live in a hostile world and an evil time. Point number two, therefore, we must rely on God to deny evil. We must rely on God to deny evil. And number three, we must strive for virtue as we wait for Jesus. We must strive for virtue as we wait for Jesus. In one sense, those three points, if you want to make it a long sentence, that's the main point of the sermon this morning. Amen? Well, let's take that first, that first point there. We live in a hostile world and in an evil time. That's the setting that our covenant reminds us of. 
This setting in the covenant is defined by two phrases. You probably notice them there. This world and this present age. This world does not simply refer to the physical earth, to the planet. This world refers to the world system that we live in. It refers to the way of life that's defined by hostility toward God and defined by sin. Paul says the elementary principles of the world or the basic structures of the world, the ideas of the world are opposite the values and the ideals of the kingdom of God. The world and the kingdom will never be reconciled. It can never be joined together in friendly cooperation. So the world, the world system, is not a neutral place, beloved. We Christians are playing on the enemy's home field. And the world is not just this sort of existence, inactive, kind of like air, just kind of out there, but not doing anything. No, the world is active. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not be conformed to the world, this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When it says, do not be conformed to the world, that word conformed, you may know, carries with the idea of squeezing. That the world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. I don't know how many of you have ever played with Play-Doh. Right? Plato is really kind of nothing. Whoever invented it is genius. Let me just create a little dough, put some color in it, and sell it. The kids will love it, right? But Plato isn't really anything until you make it something. And you can mold Plato in various kinds of shapes. You can just take it and, and roll it with the palm of your hand and make it like a noodle, or you can use your fingers and shape it in various kinds of ways. Or you can, you can get those little plastic molds or metal molds that come already pre-shaped, maybe like stars or different kind of animals, and you can press the Play-Doh into that mold. And what does the Play-Doh do? It takes the shape of that mold, doesn't it? That's what the world is trying to do to us. It's trying to press us into its mold. Now, we were made in the image and likeness of God. We already have a mold. Right, We already have a shape that we are meant to take, and so the world is trying to break that mold and to shape us in its own soul-destroying mold, to press us into conformity. And that's why Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. Resist it. Refuse it. Get out of its mold. And that's why 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17 say this, do not love the world or the things of the world or in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not, notice, from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides or lives forever. So we're called to not be squeezed into the mold of the world, and we're called not to love the world, but to resist it and to be shaped again in the image and likeness of God. Beloved, this world is not our friend, and this world does not love our God. And this is part of the context we live in. Now, the other phrase from the covenant is the phrase, this present age. 
this present age. And, and like this world, this present age doesn't refer to 2022 uh, or, or, you know, this particular year. This present age really refers to the entire period between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were reading, look back in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, you'll see that Paul mentions um, those two comings in that text. So in verse 11, he talks about um, the appearing that brings salvation. That's the first appearing of Jesus in the incarnation to die for our sins and be raised again from the grave. But then he says in verse 13 that we are what? We are waiting for what? Our blessed hope, which is what? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, that whole paragraph occurs between those two poles, the first coming of the Lord Jesus and the second coming of the Lord Jesus, his first appearing and second appearing, and that's what this present age is. We are living in that age right now. Now, here's the thing. The Bible has one word that it consistently uses to describe this present age. It's the word evil. It's the word evil. Look back at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes there, look carefully then how you walk or how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, notice, because the days are evil. Now, evil is just another word for People and ideas and actions and thoughts that are, that are seriously immoral or wicked. Evil is really the subtraction, the negation of anything and everything good. If you want to understand what evil is, think about what is good and imagine the withdrawal of it. Imagine the, the opposite of it. Then you're starting to get a sense of, of what evil is. And because this age is evil, we Christians are engaged constantly in spiritual warfare against the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So Ephesians, look over to the next chapter. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 says this. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? Notice now the reason he gives. That you may be able to withstand when? In the evil day. In this day, this present evil age, and having done all to stand firm. So we live in this world that is hostile to God and this age that is marked by evil, and we are engaged in spiritual warfare. But if we are Christians, we have already won the victory. We have already won this war. We have already won this battle. Listen to how Paul describes it in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Turn there with me if you like. It's worth looking at with your own eyes. Galatians 1, 3 to 4 describes the Christian's victory over the present evil age this way. Paul is greeting the churches in Galatia. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice now verse 4 who gave himself for our sins, why? To deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. See, our victory over the present evil age was won when Jesus gave himself for our sins. He defeated not only our sins, but he defeated the age. 
He defeated the evil of this age. He defeated the world. He defeated the hostility of this world. Our victory was purchased and guaranteed and kept for us on Golgotha in the empty tomb. He has done this for us in our place. Sacrifice him to himself, the son of God, that he might make all of us sons and daughters of God through faith in him. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. This is what we call the gospel. This is what we call the good news of Jesus Christ. The bad news is we live in this age. The bad news is we live in this world. And guess what? We were going along with the age and with the world. And for that, we were deserving of God's judgment. But the good news is, is that the Son of God has broken into the world. He has broken into this age, and he has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived a perfectly righteous life, and then he died the death that we deserve. And on the third day, he rose from the grave in victory and in glory. So that now anyone who puts their faith in him has their sins forgiven. Has their mind changed? Indeed, has their heart changed with a, a God's law written on it to desire not the things of the world and the age, but to desire the things of God? It's made a new creature and has promised eternity with God in his joy forever. That's the good news, beloved. And it's good news for you. It's offered to you. Believe it. Put your faith in this Jesus who died for your sins and rose again from the grave that you might escape this present evil age. And you might have eternal life in an age that never ends with God as your father, Jesus as your savior, and the Holy Spirit as your comforter. You're here this morning. You're not yet a Christian. We just beg with you, put your faith in Jesus. And if you have questions about what that means, talk to us afterwards. We'd love to tell you more about how to have a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christian, this is the age that we live in. It's because of this age and precisely because Jesus has delivered us from this age that we now band together as a church in this covenant to work together to resist the world and the devil and the flesh, to resist this age and to live in a manner that brings glory to God. As individual Christians and as a Christian community now, I, I trust you see that we have to understand correctly our posture toward the world. We, we got to get a good understanding of our relationship with the world system in this present evil age if we are going to carry out this part of our covenant. If we don't, beloved, here's what will happen. We'll swim right along with the tide of the world doing what the world does, thinking the way the world thinks. We'll swim right along with this present age, doing what's popular and common in this age, enjoying it and thinking nothing of it. If we're not careful to understand the hostility of the world and the evil of the age in its relationship with God, we will be choosing the wrong side in this warfare. Worldliness will become our norm. But beloved, a there's a lot that's common in this evil age and a lot that's common in this world. And though it appear common, let us never make the mistake of thinking it's normal. It's the difference between things that are common and things that are normal. And again, we learn this probably as children. As our parents teach us as little ones. How many of us as children or how many children today 
maybe you did something, you got into a little trouble at school or you got into a little trouble with your friends and you tried to justify it with your parents. You tried to explain it. You said something like, but everybody was doing it, right? You, you were saying it's common, right? You're saying the thing was common. And how many of us had parents who read from the same handbook? They look at us and say something like, well, if everybody was jumping off a bridge, would you do that too? Right? They were saying it might be common, but it's not normal. Everything we need for life, we learn by kindergarten. Right. And so how many of us have have been right there that there are many things that are common? And if, if we're not thinking carefully, we'll justify that thing simply because it's common without stopping to ask ourselves. But is this really in God's sight normal? Is it right in God's sight? Lying is common. It ain't right. Cheating is common. It ain't right. Sexual sin is common. It ain't right. The rich exploiting the poor is common. It ain't right. Drug use, alcohol use, common. It ain't right. The gunfire we hear in our neighborhood is common. But let us not adjust to it because it ain't right. It ain't natural. It ain't good in God's sight. We don't ever want to mistake what is common for what is right, what is natural for what is holy. So let me ask you, beloved, is there anything in your and my thinking, anything in our feelings, anything in our actions that we are trying to justify by saying it's common? Even though we may know that it's not right. So anything that we're justifying by saying it's common even though we know that it's not right. Let me encourage you to write those things down. If you want to, you can cover your paper so nobody can see your answers, but write those things down. And I want to encourage you to share those things with two or three people in covenant community whom you trust, who are spiritually minded. Share those things with two or three people in covenant community and make a pact to fight those things together to resist those things together, to rethink those things according to the word of God so that we might not be carried along by the world and the things of the world and this present evil age. So the first thing to recognize in this part of our covenant is that we live in a world that has fallen and hostile to God and an age that is evil. So what do we do? Number two, therefore, we must together rely on God to deny or to defeat evil. To be a covenant, to be a community in covenant with God and with each other, we're going to have to live a life of God-dependent self-denial. That's what we see in this first sentence in the covenant. Look back there with me again. We will seek by God's help to live carefully in this world, denying ungodliness and worldly passions. There are three phrases to pay attention to here real quickly in this uh, sentence. The first is we will seek. We will seek. So the seeking here now is not wishful thinking. It's not a passive seeking. It's not a kind of laid back in a recliner. I hope this happens. No, no, no. It's not vague and cloudy. The seeking here is the seeking of, it's the kind of seeking of a person who's looking for treasure with a map. It's intentional, dedicated seeking. 
We don't drift to godliness. We must seek it. And the Bible tells us how we must seek these things of God. Let me give you four passages here. Number one, we must seek continually. Psalm 105, verse 4. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. So the seeking we do as Christians, the seeking of God that we do as Christians, the seeking that we just sang about, for your glory, I will do anything. It is a constant seeking, a continual seeking. Number two, we must seek urgently. Isaiah 55, verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Don't put it off for tomorrow. Don't procrastinate. Don't act like you got all day and all your life. You may not. Seek him urgently. Number three, seek diligently. Seek diligently. Hosea chapter 10, verse 2. He uses this farming illustration. He says, sow or plant for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow or hard, unfertile ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. What vocation is a harder working vocation than a farmer? And that's the imagery that's used here, the the planting, the reaping, the breaking up tough soil. That's how we're to seek God diligently. And we're to seek it not only continually, urgently, diligently, but we must seek it primarily. We must seek it primarily. Matthew 6, 33, you know these words. But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek it when? In what order? First. And I never get tired of pointing out that Jesus never listed a second. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So if we're going to keep this covenant, we've got to be God-seeking people, God-chasing people, continually, urgently, diligently, primarily. But notice the second phrase now, by God's help. By God's help. A life of self-denial is not a life of self-reliance. A life of self-denial is not a life of self-reliance. If we're truly denying ourselves, listen, beloved, then we cannot even rely on ourselves to make the denial. Instead of looking to our own strength, a life of real self-denial will look to God for health and strength, even to deny ourselves. And a lot of times, beloved, we, we fail at denying ourselves, don't we? Um, we fail at denying sin and worldliness because we're, we're trying to do it in our own power. But it takes God to be godly, beloved. It takes God to be godly. It takes spiritual strength to have spiritual success. We're not going to be able to keep this part of our covenant, beloved, any part of our covenant, really, without looking to God for help. Here's how Jesus himself put it. Uh, You can turn with me if you want to. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. Here's how the Lord Jesus himself illustrated and taught that we would need to rely on God in order to grow and produce fruit. John 15, 1 to 5. Jesus says there, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, notice he, the Father, the vine dresser, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he, the Father, the vine dresser, prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So it's Jesus who cleanses us. 
abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides, abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now listen to this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, apart from him, we who call ourselves Christians, we can't do anything that bears spiritual fruit, that that is really true spiritual success. We need to be pruned by the Father, and we need to sap the life that comes from abiding in Jesus as divine. By God's help, we branches produce fruit. Now think again about our successes as Christians and our failures as Christians. Think about both of those things. How many, beloved, of our successes can be explained without heavy reference to God the Father, Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit? If we can explain our successes without reference to God, is it really self-denial? And is it really success? Or or think about our failures in self-denial. How many of our failures in self-denial can be explained by the fact that we left God out? We were up late one night and we were convicted of our sin and we were maybe confused about our sin. We were maybe angry about our sin and we were tired of our sin and we said to God, I'm done with this. But the next thing we said was, I'm going to. The next thing we said should have been, God help me. So we say, I'm done with this. I'm mad at my sin. I'm tired of my sin. I'm tired of this. I'm confused about this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do A, B, C, D, and E. We start listing out the self-help program. But self-reliance is not self-denial. Got to cross out that. I mean, it has its place, right? But as, as, as sort of primary source of strength, we got to cross that out. And we just, God help me, a sinner. Help me, a sinner. How many of our failures in self-reliance really are are because we were still engaged in self-effort? And here's what's funny. A, a, A lot of people want to blame God for their failures while accepting credit for their successes. If we fail, God, you didn't help me. If we succeed, look what I done. Look what I done done. But God isn't, in, that, in those cases, God isn't in either the success or the failure. It was all us. It was self-effort. It was self-reliance. And it was fruitless, according to Jesus in John 15. It's fruitless. So, beloved, we must do all of life, especially keeping covenant, covenant with God and covenant with each other and covenant with ourselves. We must do all of life by God's help. So the question really becomes, are, do, do we seek God's help to live in this covenant community? Or are we trying to do it in our own strength? Are we trying to have unity in our own strength? We're trying to forgive each other in our own strength. We're trying to encourage each other in our own strength. We're trying to bear with one another in our own strength. That's going to be failing, beloved, because we're weak creatures. 
has to be by God's help. Here's the third phrase to see there, to live carefully, to live carefully. We will seek by God's help to live carefully in this world. And um, just like seeking, this careful living requires intentionality. It's intentional seeking and divine assistance that leads to this careful living. Without being intentional and without God's help, we're just going to be reckless in this world, ain't we? We're just going to be reckless in how we live. It's, as, and as sinners, it's our, it's our nature to go astray, to wander into our own way. Apart from God, we are, we are wanton, lawless, rebellious individuals and, and people groups. Apart from God, we are anything but careful in how we live. And in this world, in this present evil age, there will be no encouragements from the world or the age for you to live carefully. Every encouragement, every enticement, every inducement will be for you to live recklessly. It's not how we're to live, though. We are pledging together as a church to covenant together in God's strength to live carefully in this world. How do we do that? Let me give you three ways from Scripture. So I told you we had three points. Peter's keeping count. This is point number 27. <laughs> we give you three ways, sub-points here. Well, how do we live carefully according to the Bible? Well, the first answer is right there in our covenant and right from Titus 2. We have to deny ungodliness and worldliness. We've got to deny ungodliness and worldliness. A former first lady of the United States, Nancy Reagan, some of y'all are old enough to remember her, had a campaign to fight drug use. Anybody remember what it was? Just say no. Just say no. And man, people drug her for that campaign. Lots of people were responding. Just say no. How unrealistic that is. The people facing all these temptations have all these weaknesses, and just she's just naive and out of touch. Just say no. That doesn't work. That's not going to work. But I want to defend Ms. Reagan this morning. No one has ever changed a bad habit or broken away from a pattern of sin without first saying no to that habit or that sin. Nobody has. The road to change begins with denying ourselves those things that destroy us, those things that anger God. We can't keep saying yes to ungodliness and to lust and expect to become holy and righteous in God's sight. Just can't have it both ways. Now, we may need to go on to do much more than say no, right? But we got to start with no. We've got to start with a definite resolution that I'm not going to give myself to this thing, whatever it is, any longer. I am, in the power of God, going to deny worldliness, worldly passions, and ungodliness. So that's the first step in living carefully is knowing what to say no to and actually saying no to it. And that's what our covenant calls us to. Again, think Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. What Paul says there, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. That's going to bring us to our, our second uh, sort of application here. We want to not only deny ungodliness and worldliness, but we also want to seek wisdom. Paul says not as unwise, but as 
wise. That's how we want to walk. To live carefully, we have to live wisely. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, fools are not known for being careful, right? The foolish person, the unwise person, is by definition uh, a person who acts before they think, right? Again, we learned this as children, right? Think before you act. Think before you act. But that's not the fool. The fool doesn't listen to the counsel of Scripture, doesn't listen to the counsel of of wise others, doesn't even listen to the counsel of his, his own mind, his own better mind. He rushes ahead and does things recklessly. So if we're going to live carefully in this world, a, a life of self-denial, we'll, we'll need wisdom. Proverbs 14, verses 6 to 8. The writer of Proverbs says there, a scoffer, it's another word for fools, a scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. But knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent or the wise is to discern, to figure out his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Wise people figure out the path of life and they take it. But the fool is wandering off into the bushes and the bramble and the quicksand of life. We want to live with wisdom, Ephesians 5, 15, not as the unwise. And number three, notice again in Ephesians 5 there, verse 16, we want to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. So we want to live a life of self-denial and wisdom. Here, the Bible says very practically, use your time in the best way. Use your time in the best way. How wise God is in his word. Time is a resource we can't get back and we can't predict how much we have. We all have a limited number of days to live. And once we use a day or an hour, we can't can't get it back. I love my sister in Congress talking about reclaiming her time, reclaiming her time, but that works in parliamentary, parliamentary procedure. It doesn't work in life. Once you use it, it's gone. So wisdom says use time effectively. Now, notice something here. The Bible does not say make good use of your time. It says make the best use of time. That's another way of understanding self-denial. In a a life of self-denial, we'll consistently use our time to choose the best thing even over the good thing. We're going to make use, the best use of our time. The question, is that true of us? Is that how we live? Let me give us some suggestions for auditing ourselves, auditing our time. Why don't we start tracking our time? I mean, how can we steward our time if we don't track where it goes? That man on your job expects you to track your time, doesn't he? Clock in, clock out, how much time you spent on the project, you know, billing your, your, your billable hours or whatever the case may be. But how many of us, as a stewardship to God of the gift of time, track our time? Where does it go? Then let's, let's think about where we use our time. We, we assign our time, the use of our time, to the godly column or the ungodly column. And in the godly column, is it the good use or the 
excellent, best use of time. That TV show, that time with friends, that video game, preaching to myself now, that work we do, even the careers we choose, is it the best use of time in God's sight? Finally, we're going to track our time. We're going to sort of figure out where our time is going. Let's ask ourselves, as I just said, is that the best use? We can have several things in the godly column, all good things, all permissible things, and all things for which we have freedom to pursue, but still that word just keeps coming back to us, doesn't it? Make the best use of your time. Is that our habit of thinking about what is the best use of our time? Now, let me, let me, let me say something to clarify, lest, lest um some, some unhealthy notions of what it means to be a Christian distorts this application. Some people think that the Christian, the serious Christian, is always serious all the time. They only read their Bible. They never do anything else. And as a consequence, they are no fun. I don't think that's what's meant here by the best use of time. I'm sure of it because in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says that God gives us all good things for our enjoyment. So enjoying things can actually be the best use of your time. Things like rest, God gives his beloved sleep. It's the best use of your time. You realize that sometimes it is much better for you to go to bed or take a nap than to work another hour on that project. Right? So I don't want you to get the sense that the best use of our time is some kind of asceticism where we're never doing anything that brings us pleasure, never doing anything that that looks like kind of goofing off. That's not what's meant here, right? So the best use of your time may be something that doesn't look like productivity, but actually might be the best thing for your soul and for your body. So I just want to add that caveat and then ask you again the question, Are we habitually using our time in the best way? Because that's pretty important for living carefully in this world. Let's go to our third point, final point. So not only must we deny ourselves with God's help, but notice number three, we must strive for virtue as we wait for Jesus. So if you use the metaphor that Paul used in Ephesians, there are some things that we have to take off, some old dirty clothes that we take off, That's self-denial. And then there's some things we have to put on, some new fresh clothes, clean clothes that we put on. That's virtue and waiting for Jesus. Looking at the covenant, the second sentence there in the covenant. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So a life of self-denial is a life of subtraction, of taking away things. If all we have is self-denial, then we really will be miserable people. We will live a miserable life. So the text here and the covenant says not only are we removing the things that need to be removed, but we are also adding things that ought to be added, right? That we are pursuing here virtue. Now, notice the virtues that are listed here. They come, again, from Titus chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. There are three virtues listed there, self-control uprightness or righteousness, and godliness. Again, this doesn't happen in our own strength. This is what God is producing in us. We know that because that first one, self-control, is a fruit of the what? 
the Spirit, right? It is the Holy Spirit who produces supernaturally self-control in the life of the Christian. And, and we know that this is happening in God's strength because all of our striving, again, depends upon his help. But we really do strive. We really do push ourselves. We're like Olympic athletes in the spiritual realm. We are taking care of our diets. We're taking care of our bodies. We are working out. We're trying to get faster times. We're trying to lift more weight. We're, we're really sort of pressing toward the goal. And it's remarkable. Olympic athletes will do that for four years to participate in a competition that lasts four seconds. And the winner sometimes will be decided by fractions of a second. Right? And so they are pressing for more gains. And, and the covenant, in a sense, is calling us to strive, to, to press toward the mark, to twist, press toward not a perishable crown, but an imperishable crown in Christ Jesus. And so we are striving for virtue, for self-control, the ability to master ourselves, to bring our thoughts captive to Christ, to bring our bodies under control. We bring our words and our feelings and actions under our mastery, under the leading and filling of the Holy Spirit. And we need to put on uprightness or righteousness. Righteousness in this context is not the righteousness that comes by faith. It's not justification. It's the practical, lived out, ethical righteousness. It's living a right life as a Christian. It's doing the right thing for the right people at the right time. And boy, that takes skill and practice. As a covenant community, we commit ourselves to trying to do the right things for the right people at the right time. So let me give you some illustrations. If the, if the, if the police abuse their authority and mistreat the community, we speak up for the community against the police because that's what upright people do. But if someone from the community attacks the police, we speak up for the police against those persons in the community because that's what upright people do. If one community acts in a racist way toward another community, we speak up in defense of the mistreated community and we speak out against the mistreatment of the other community. Why? Because that's what righteous people do. So if African-Americans are attacking Asian-Americans in New York City subways or California streets, we speak against African-Americans in defense of Asian-Americans because that's right. Or if African-Americans are mistreated by white Americans, we speak up for African-Americans and against those white Americans because that's right. If white Americans are mistreated by African-Americans, we, we speak up for white Americans against those African-Americans who are acting unrighteously because that is right. So we, we are covenanting together to learn the skill to do what's right, when it's right, for the right people in the right way. And that's hard, beloved, in a world that's hostile to God in a present evil age. And we strive to live godly lives. Godliness is so important. It's vital to walk with the Lord. As Ephesians 5.1 puts it, we are to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. We're to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. Godliness is spiritual beauty. It's living more and more the way God lives. This is what we strive for. And while we strive, notice now we also wait. 
The covenant says, as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we said earlier, our entire lives, this age is lived between two appearings. The first appearing of the Lord uh, to, to die for our sins and to be resurrected from the grave. And the second appearing of Christ when he comes to gather his church and to bring us into his eternal kingdom and to judge the world. We live between those two poles. What does the Bible call us to do as we live in that in-between time? It calls, it calls us to wait. To wait with anticipation. To wait actively. To look for his coming as our blessed hope. The word blessed could be translated happy. Our happy hope. Our happy confidence is that Jesus is, in fact, coming again. That the things that we endure from day to day are not the final things. They don't have the final say. We sang it earlier. Jehovah has the final say. And in his final say, his son is coming again to gather his people. And we who wait for Jesus in faith and hope, in longing and anticipation, notice now, we will see the appearing of the great glory of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Bible, to see the glory of God is the highest possible blessing and reward. It's what Moses longed for, hidden in the cleft of the rock. It's what we got only a glimpse of in the first incarnation of Christ. It's what was temporarily shown to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. But it will be our every moment existence in the second coming of Christ. We will look upon the glory of God and that glory never, ever be diminished, never get old to us. Never get tired to us, but always be feeding us with wonder and joy and awe and happiness. We wait for the glorious appearing, the day when the archangel shouts and the angel blows the trump and the sky is cracked and then descends the Son of God with a white robe riding a white horse with all the angels and the army of heaven in his train to meet us in the air and to so forever be with him in his kingdom. This world gets ugly looking. This world is wearisome. This world is brutal sometimes. This world will make you want to stay in your house and not go outside. This world will produce fear and trembling and anxiety and doubt. But never doubt this, beloved. There is a new world coming. There is a king coming. There is a glory coming. There is a righteousness and a holiness and a splendor and a beauty coming, especially for the people of Christ who trust in him 
and who wait for him. So we put on virtue, self-control, uprightness, godliness, and we wait. Lord, we wait. And here's the promise. That day is coming sooner than we think. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Christ shall descend and appear in glory. And we shall be taken up together with him. We covenant together to wait for that day. Let's pray together. Father, we say, hasten the day. Come quickly, Lord. We remember what you tell us in your word, that we are your children. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And we pray, Lord, with your word, help us, all of us, with unveiled face to behold the glory of the Lord to be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And we know this comes from you, Spirit. And we know, Lord, this is going to happen because long before we prayed for Jesus to come and long before we prayed to see his glory, Jesus himself prayed that we would see your glory, his glory. Praise you for John 17, 24, where our Lord said, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What an amazing thing, Lord Jesus, that you want to share your eternal glory with us who believe. And so we look forward and we wait to your coming. Come quickly. End our self-denial. Bring the age where we can give ourselves freely to everything that's beautiful and good and righteous. In this present evil age, in this world system, bring that eternal day where there is no night, no suffering, no death, no disease, where there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come quickly in your name. Amen.